We don't want you to speak about the case. The case. The case is, is a ridiculous case. It's a First Amendment case. But we don't want Trump to speak. So somehow that's not good for votes. Do you agree? When we say, I can't talk, I'd love to, t I will talk about it. I will. They're not taking away my First Amendment rights. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. This week, Donald Trump's legal team came face to face with Judge Tanya S. Chutkin of the D.C. Federal District Court. Judge Chutkin made it clear that in her courtroom, Donald Trump will be treated just like any other criminal defendant and, most to the point, that she will not be influenced by arguments about his political candidacy. Chutkin seemed fully up to the job of enforcing her admonitions about not tainting the jury pool or threatening witnesses. In the week leading up to the hearing, Trump broadcast vile and vitriolic messages about many of the figures in the several criminal cases against him, Chutkin included, and crowed that he would not abide by any protective order that abridged his First Amendment rights. Thus, the lines have been drawn for a potential standoff in which Chutkin has the ultimate power to put Trump in jail, but it's a power she's got to be reluctant to use. That is, unless Trump leaves her no choice. The January 6th case came into better focus this week with the publication of an important memo written by Ken Chesbro, a.k.a. co-conspirator number five, which the indictment portrays as a sharp departure into brute illegality in the false electors scheme. The prospects for whataboutism increased markedly at the end of the week, when Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that he had appointed U.S. Attorney David Weiss, a Trump-era holdover, to be special counsel in the investigation of Hunter Biden. The new title didn't augment Weiss's powers as a practical matter, but it laid the groundwork for a trial of the younger Biden that would give fodder to Biden critics throughout the election season. Finally, there were clear signs that the long-awaited indictment in Fulton County, Georgia, was truly imminent. Unlike Trump's other criminal cases, the Fulton County charges out of D.A. Fonnie Willis's office promised to be sprawling and ungainly, with far-reaching legal theories and over a dozen defendants. To analyze these several legal developments and their vast political fallout, including the potential effect on the 2024 presidential election. We welcome three of the most respected commentators in D.C. and the country. And they are Peter Baker, the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times, where he is covering his fifth presidential administration. He previously reported for the Washington Post for 20 years. He's an MSNBC political analyst and the author of seven, count them, seven books, most recently, The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021, which he co-wrote with his wife, Susan Glasser, and we covered in a Talking Books episode previously. Peter, always a pleasure to welcome you back. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Sadie German returns for her second episode, so the trial by fire must have been a success. She's a Wall Street Journal reporter 
covering the Justice Department and federal law enforcement with an emphasis on the intersection of politics and law. She's covered legal issues for more than 17 years, previously for the Associated Press, several local newspapers, including, I think, my hometown, Pittsburgh paper. Sadie, thank you for returning. Thanks for having me back. And Jason Kander, the president of the National Expansion at Veterans Community Project, a nonprofit dedicated to fighting veteran suicide and homelessness. He served in the Army in Afghanistan and was then elected to the Missouri State Legislature and later became Missouri Secretary of State. Jason hosts the popular podcast Majority 54, and we covered his book, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD, in another Talking Books episode. Jason, thank you for your service, and thank you for coming back to Talking Feds. Howdy, Harry. Always good to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Almost a little bit of a dilemma this week, where to start such a torrent of news, but I think we're best to start with the multiple developments in the January 6th case against Trump. So we had the first hearing with Judge Tanya Chutkin. It was about the terms of a protective order to govern Trump's use of the discovery materials. Not the biggest issue, but not the smallest, and I think a real harbinger of what's to come. Let me just ask generally, what stood out to any of you from the hearing? I thought it was interesting that the judge in this case didn't give prosecutors everything that they wanted. I mean, the prosecutors had asked for just sort of a blanket protective order that would have covered almost all of the evidence and kept it, you know, trying to keep it close hold out of public view. But the judge in this case really tried to strike a balance and sort of split the baby by giving Trump some of what he wanted and acknowledging that Trump does have some free speech rights, though they are not absolute. So, you know, this was an Obama-appointed judge, and I think people in the Trump camp sort of have this idea of her as being very tough on the January 6th protesters, but we see her taking, I think, a pretty measured approach in her first early actions in this case. Yeah, I was struck by the early commentary that was kind of all over the map. By the end, I think the big first offering she had given to Trump, she had kind of taken away with the other hand in that she made clear, I thought, who was boss and who wasn't and admonished him pretty severely not to do anything to pollute the jury pool or to endanger witnesses. Did you get a a sense for her kind of gravitas as a judge? I can't say that I have a great sense for that, but I was thinking about the decision not to give the prosecution everything they want. It reminds me of like when you know that your kid is going to break a rule and you're like, I can't come down too hard with what the rule is going to be because I know I don't have the time or the ability to enforce it. So it's like, you know that Trump is going to break a protective order at some point. So if you make it too sweeping, then it's going to happen right away. And then you're going to look weak when you don't put him in jail for like leaking a piece of evidence that was provided by the prosecution. So I think you have to be pretty, you have to restrict yourself a little bit in that way, because you've got to be able to enforce what you say. Yeah, I think that's a really prescient point. We all, I think, have to expect that he's going to be a bad boy. And I think she has several things she can do and then a nuclear weapon. And she has to kind of subdivide as much as she can. She really doesn't want to go there if she can avoid it. And it it would be fraught with all kinds of 
implications for an actual presidential candidate being put in the pokey. She's got to look ahead longitudinally because there's going to come a point where she says, this time, I mean it. You do it again because she'll have nothing left to say. And then the next time, just as you say, if she doesn't, she's not in control of her court anymore. It's like screen time over the summer. Like, I mean, I got to work. And I mean, I can only tell my kids so much about screen time over the summer. I got a job I got to do. Well, you said that. You said time, but you also said ability with right. your kids. And maybe it's true. I'm not judging the the young. I'm <laughs> sure they're little angels. But No, no, you're right. Peter, what do you think about her ability to shut him down? She did come across as pretty tough. So what? How do you see it influencing Trump, if at all, on the campaign trail? Yeah, I mean, I think the to abuse a, a courtroom cliche, I think the jury's out. I hear her say, gosh, don't be bad, Mr. Trump. And I think of all the many people who have said that over the years, and then it basically was meaningless. And so the question isn't that she says it, that's that you would expect a judge to say it. The question is, how does she make that a reality? And I don't know that she can. I mean, it's going to be really a fascinating challenge because he is not, as we just said, he's not going to listen to her. He is not going to do that. He's he's going to say and do things that will push her buttons. And I think intentionally so. I think, I think in some ways he's trying to dare the court to come after him because that he thinks that that may be politically useful. That will show that he is a victim. That will show that they're trying to shut him down. They're trying to gag him. They're trying to censor him and all that. And in fact, she avoided that trap arguably by not slapping him with some sort of a gag order yesterday and basically giving him some of at least what he wanted. But in the future, he's not going to listen to her. And then the question becomes, do you take the screens away? Even though you don't have the time and the energy to do it, does she actually have to try to do that? And Sadie, I saw you shaking your head when Peter was saying part of him wants to. Do you think his political strategy or martyr complex actually would be satisfied by being put in jail for a couple of days? Would serve his kind of messianic image? Is he prepared for that much? Well, I mean, I do think that fits in, into sort of what their broader campaign slash legal strategy is. You know, Trump has really seized on these prosecutions to fundraise and to show that he's a political prisoner and that these are politically motivated prosecutions. And I think just having the image associated of him being put in handcuffs and taken to jail for speaking his mind, as he would say, or exercising his free speech would really play into that narrative. But one other thing that I thought was interesting at the hearing yesterday was that Trump's lawyers repeatedly tried to suggest and outright said that this investigation is politically motivated. They said Trump needed to be able to have access to this information in order to respond to his political opponents, in this case, the Biden administration and Biden, who brought the charges here. Right, it's always Biden. Yeah, right. And the judge quickly shut that down and said, I'm not going to I'm not going to have any of that. I haven't seen any evidence that there's any political influence here. But so I just thought she was sort of drawing that red line pretty early on. Yeah, she wasn't just firm, but she thought it through. But I'd like to stick with Trump a little bit further in this always perilous to try to psychoanalyze, because the flip side is he needs always to be in control and on top and nothing more diminishing than, as you say, being led away in cuffs. Is his plan actually go so far as to be ready to go to jail for a couple days? Because then she really is, it seems to me, impotent. I don't think he thinks that far ahead. I don't think he thinks that far ahead. And on top of that, he has led an entirely consequence-free life. And as scared as Donald Trump is of going to prison and 
any human being would be, but by all accounts, it's something he has lived in fear of his whole life, which is the kind of thing you live in fear of your entire life when you are committing crimes and not getting caught. And so as a result, I just don't think he can fully conceptualize the idea of being held accountable for this. And so I think he's going to behave like somebody who can't imagine that the judge will actually do anything. Yeah. I think that's right. I don't think anybody wants to go to prison. I especially don't think he wants to. I mean, I've met, I, you know, but you've met people in the course of your life. I was in Russia for four years. There are dissidents there. There are, let's say, civil rights protesters here who actually are prepared to go to jail because they see it as a part of a larger cause, I suppose, or or what have you. I don't think that's Donald Trump. That's just not him, right? He's just, there's nothing about him that's saying, hey, take me away because I think it'll make me stronger politically. I think he just thinks he can dare the system and stare them down because as Jason said, he's nobody's ever actually done that to him before. And he doesn't think it's going to happen here. And he doesn't think that far ahead. And I think he's going to be, we'll see how, I, it's hard to imagine the judge actually putting a former president in prison just because he's speaking. And it, even though that's what you might do with another defendant. And as, as much as she says, I'm going to treat you like every other defendant, he is still a former president and a presidential front runner for his party's nomination. So it's just hard in a practical sense to imagine that happening. Both sides seem kind of imponderable. Sticking with the political side of what he's doing. So yes, he wants to be on the hustings, as he says, exercising his First Amendment rights. What that turns out to be in the last week or 10 days is, and even for him, an unbelievable torrent of nasty insults toward everyone, especially African-American involved with any of the various prosecutions. Totally vile stuff about Fonnie Willis, who's the Fulton County prosecutor, but also Chutkin herself, Smith, Joe Biden, just all caps, over-the-top nastiness. You think about Jason's point about nobody ever told him otherwise. This, this is a guy who somehow in kindergarten, you know, nobody washed his mouth out with soap. I wonder how you think, though, that fits into his political sort of strategy, maybe we could say. What is it? What did Bush put a strategy? Strategy. Is that part of this something that he just can't help himself but be a total flaming bastard? Or does he think politically, in fact, the viler he can be toward these folks, the more cheers, the more $25 donations he gets. It's actually signal, not noise in terms of his campaign. I think it's strategic in the sense that he does see the dollars come in as a result of him being inflammatory. But actually, what's interesting here, when I look at Trump at this point, what I see is somebody who is approaching things the way he's always approached things with a difference in his perspective. And that perspective is now that of a former president who is ensconced in you know the protective layer that is given to somebody who's a former president combined with the four years he spent in the White House, which means you have the same like shoot from the hip, say whatever Donald Trump, but he's not anywhere near as in touch with what, I mean, look, He's not just speaking to the base at this point. He's speaking to the most extreme element of the base because that is what he has surrounded himself with. And the difference, when he came down the escalator in 2015, you know, he said horrific things, but he said them in a way that resonated with a wider group of the population because he was able to tap into, to use another term from that era, what Stephen Colbert called truthiness, right? Like things that like to certain people, like in my part of the country sounded, oh, that, that feels a little true, even though it wasn't. He's not able to do that anymore because it's not like he goes out and spends time with regular people. And he was actually doing that a little bit seven years ago and he's not doing it anymore. 
let's think about this from the other side. I mean, it does, this one feels to me, it, it, you know, people, including I, have thrown around what you might think is hyperbole, but every time you sort of hyperbole test it, I come concluding, no, this really is probably the most important criminal trial in our history. So besides all the now political stakes, since this one could really go first, Peter, you've written about the sort of magnitude and sobriety of this case as contrasted with the others. How would you assess or just discuss the kind of national importance of this particular, what is on the one hand, a set of criminal charges against one guy, but on the other hand, seems to enfold national and almost historic stakes for the country? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I without in any way diminishing the seriousness of the hush money or the classified documents cases, this case goes to the heart of our democracy. We've had people who've endangered national security by being casual with classified documents and even obstruction justice and paying off women not to tell about their sexual escapades. We have never had a sitting president who tried to overturn an election. And the facts in that case are just not in dispute. The question is whether it's illegal or not. And it is an extraordinary moment where we are testing what it means to be a democracy or a republic, as the conservatives would like to say these days. Can a president who has lost an election, who has been tossed out of office by the voters, spread lies and use his power to influence the Justice Department, the various states, to pressure people like a secretary of state of Georgia, to pressure his vice president, to pressure the Congress in order to overturn the will of the voters and keep power? If he wasn't in office, we would say somebody trying to seize power would be, I think, a more striking phrase, right? Seizing power, even though the voters didn't give it to him, would seem like a coup. Well, keeping power, if you're not entitled to it, raises a lot of the same questions, doesn't it? And I think that that's why this case is so important. Now, the issues he raises, the defenses he raises are important too, right? He says, look, my lawyers told me I could do it. I was simply doing what they told me was a reasonable constitutional argument, even if they were wrong, or I genuinely believe that there was fraud there and I was just trying to get the election uh, to be an honest one. He's going to make these cases and that's going to be litigated. And that's, that's important that we remember he is presumed to be innocent until proven guilty. But the stakes here are enormous. And I think that's why going first makes some sense, I would think, because we ought to hit the big question before voters really uh, are asked to make their own judgment coming up next year. As you stated the stakes, they're incalculably large, but backwards looking. When you put the campaign in the mix, you now have this lady or tiger eventuality coming soon where everything seems on the line. Let's do a little bit of the nuts and bolts of the case. A lot happened and we have a lot of other things to talk about. But Sadie, anything noteworthy to you shaping up about his defenses at trial, and I'll just throw into the mix the revelation this week of the Ken Chesbro memo and what we learned about the false electors approach. Trump's lawyers have been on television talking a lot about free speech and about how this case is sort of runs up against his free speech rights. But I think really the bigger issue is whether, like Peter said, that conduct here is criminal, you know, as the Supreme Court has several rulings in recent years that have limited what federal law considers corruption. And so, you know, with something like the false electors, which we saw portrayed in that memo, 
you know, that's less an issue about exercising free speech as it is about, well, is this conduct criminal behavior or is it sort of just the messy business of politics? I mean, I think that with some of Jack Smith's prior cases when he worked in the Justice Department's public integrity section, we saw his team taking broad, a sort of far-reaching view of federal statutes related to corruption and things like campaign finance. Not always successfully. Not always successfully. And so the legal experts that I've been talking to about this are more pointing to the challenges that he might face in terms of, you know, precedent, Supreme Court precedent, and sort of how the Supreme Court has raised the bar in recent years for what constitutes criminal behavior and versus just the natural course of, of politics. So I think Smith is walking that line. But like Peter said, I mean, the facts are not in dispute. When I was at the DOJ, I played the role a few times of the appellate, the pain in the ass nerd who was there at the trial level saying, I don't know if you want to do this one. It might get reversed on the line. And everyone was like, shut the F up. We'll take care of the trial. You take care of the appeal. But I mean, you imagine McDonald, which Smith worked on as an example, but I get a little skittish about the 241 charge. It's getting a little too inside the weeds, but there are ways to win the battle and lose the war. And But the thought, you could say take everything Peter just said and think about a Supreme Court decision reversing three years down the line. It's just like, you know, that your head and that of the country kind of um, blows off. <laughs> Let me double back to a thing you just said in passing and uh, Jason, Peter, or anyone, what the hell? Everything about this case is totally unusual, but the lawyer doing as as we said in a, in a bygone era, the full Ginsburg that is being on every single show, applying this First Amendment argument that no lawyer anyway, or people will be inside the courtroom, thinks has much purchase. What do you uh, make of that? It's, it must have been purposeful. Does it seem unwise or given his strategy here, basically of going all in on the campaign itself? Does it stand to reason? It's certainly um, not what we've seen in other high-profile trials. I would have to assume that it just comes from Trump telling his lawyers that's what he wants. Because I'd be really surprised if they're giving him the legal advice that, hey, you know, what you need is for us to go on TV and to tell everybody what your argument in court is going to be. And so, yes, I think, Harry, you're right that it's him thinking about the court of public opinion 100% of the time and the court of you probably are going to go to prison 0% of the time. And so he's like, just get out there and make the case on TV because he thinks in his mind, that's where the trial is. I knew Bill Ginsburg. I covered that case. <laughs> For our younger listeners, we're talking the uh, Monica Lewinsky's original lawyer. That's Sorry, right. Go ahead. He was, in fact, he and he was he was hired by Monica Lewinsky to represent her, and she was not, of course, a criminal lawyer. He was the family business lawyer, and and he did run all five Sunday shows. He was the first one to do that, and therefore that's why we still call it the full Ginsburg kind of a insider term, obviously. But he wasn't seen as all that successful. He was not the one who got her the immunity deal and got her out of the crosshairs of the prosecutors. She had to get rid of him eventually and hire Plato Kacharis, the legendary Washington attorney who saved her basically in terms of her legal exposure. So the full Ginsburg is not necessarily, I think, the best precedent for a lawyer, but I think Jason is exactly right. If you're a lawyer for Donald Trump, there's no such thing as I'm not going to comment until we get into the courtroom. That just doesn't apply. It just will never, ever be his approach. And so that's what he wants his lawyers to do. He wants them to get out there and be on all five shows and aggressively make his case, whether it causes him legal issues or not, that doesn't matter to him. 
But the lawyers are in a pretty interesting position here, and we've already saw them come apart this week. He insisted and doubled down on, I'm going to move to recuse Chutkin. And John Laurel, his lawyer, said, oh, that's, you know, that's Don talking, whatever. There's, and and it, similarly, she can come down very, very hard on the lawyers. And she did, a, you know, I gave previews of that a few times. She makes the lawyers pledge to control their client. Of course, something else that can't be done. But at some point, to be a lawyer in, in a real case for Trump is meaning here anyway, coming apart from him in a gingerly way and answering questions in a way that says, well, that's him in the political realm. I'm supposedly representing him. So we've got very soon the big reveal of what the timing is going to be. She, again, is all business here, Didn't wants to get to the question of setting a schedule with real dispatch, and we'll know on the 28th. They're in a kind of interesting box, Team Trump. No, uh, Smith came out and said, we can do this January 2nd, which is kind of super early. I'm sure if she turns around and says, okay, do it, they'll have it ready to go. Trump, before the more friendly Judge Cannon, was able to respond to an early bid. Let's not even talk about this. Seems to me he's got to come forward with something, or it won't go very well if he just says, let's just take it off calendar. He's got to go far away from January to try to get to, you know, his safe harbor of post-November, yeah? Yes, and I think the strategy in all of these cases has been to delay, delay, delay. And like you said, that worked in the documents case to some extent, but I mean, none of these times are really great for Trump, you know, in terms of juggling courtroom battles with campaign events. Like, I don't know how they're going to be able to make that happen. You know, I don't know how he's going to be able to be present for what will likely be a very long trial here in Washington at the same time as, you know, which will ultimately run into the Manhattan DA case, which will ultimately run into the Mar-a-Lago case. So I have never seen anything like this before, and I am not sure how they're going to structure it. And I can't imagine what kind of an argument they might make, except for that they will point to how difficult it's going to be for him to campaign with these criminal trials, these proceedings just continuously back to back. I mean, if you look at the calendar, it kind of has to be tomorrow. Something and big is going to have to give. All right, so much more to come here. But I wanted to close out with a question about an entity we haven't thought that much about, and that's the Department of Justice. And Peter, you you wrote, I thought, a really trenchant piece about the stakes for the department itself, which you see as very high. Can you give us your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the problem for the Justice Department is in some ways structural, right? I mean, our system is built that we do not actually have an independent prosecutorial organization in a political case like this. So by definition, people are going to look at the Justice Department and say, well, that's Biden's Justice Department. And they're not incorrect to say it's Biden's Justice Department. That doesn't mean that it's politically motivated. There's no evidence whatsoever other than the origin of, you know, Merrick Garland's appointment being from the president, that there's any kind of political influence involved here, unlike under the Trump administration, when he was very open about it. He openly told us again and again that he wanted his attorney general to prosecute his enemies and to forgive his uh, friends. There's no disguising it there. In this case, at least, if they're doing it, they're very good at disguising it because right now there's no evidence that President Biden has played any role. He's made a point of staying quiet. There's no evidence that Merrick Garland is, is injecting politics into it. He keeps trying to, to insulate it from politics by making people special counsels, but that's not going to convince either Trump or his people 
people, of course, that doesn't matter to them. They're always going to see, make it the Biden administration is doing this. The Biden administration is doing that. And that's just, it's just corrosive to the faith in the system that we traditionally have had, or at least wanted to have in our prosecutorial department here. And I, I think that the consequences are enormous. What President Trump, former President Trump is doing is telling at least part of the country not to trust their institutions, not to trust the system. And it doesn't matter how many I's Jack Smith dots and how many T's he crosses and how much he does everything by the book. It will never convince Trump, of course, as in, by the way, no criminal defendant loves his prosecutor. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's true. But this one has a big, big bullhorn to convince the public that something is wrong here. And this can, this can go on for years to come. And an indifference to fact. Indifference to facts and indifference to consequence, right? This goes beyond him. That if we don't have faith in the FBI, we don't have faith in the Justice Department, we don't have faith in the courts, we've lost a lot. You know, what it makes me think of is the fact that when I look back at the way from the very beginning Americans have seen our system, there's been this enormous faith in institutions and the system that we set up to keep us from, you know, heading over the cliff to be just like any other country. But what we are, I think, often naive to is that those systems don't matter if the men or women who are acting upon those systems have absolutely no respect for the institutions themselves, right? And we've just been fortunate that at almost every point in American history of the three branches of government, there's been usually at least two individuals in the lead who had enough respect for the institutions that they wouldn't permanently damage them in order to advance themselves. And Donald Trump is just a one man wrecking crew on all of our institutions because, you know, as Peter pointed out, the DOJ isn't doing anything out of the ordinary. It's going out of its way to do things not just appropriately, but with every appearance of like just getting rid of everything that could possibly cast aspersions on it. And Trump is such a one man wrecking crew that he'll make people, you know, feel that way. But that's because he's never followed any rules, which is why he's going to spend, you know, he'll be in court next year more than Sam Waterston <laughs> on our TVs. So because of his lack of respect for anything. I also wrote a version of the story about the stakes for DOJ. And in reporting that, I was surprised to learn that public opinion of the Justice Department and public trust in the Justice Department across the political spectrum is not very high. I think something like 60% of Republicans do not trust the Justice Department to be apolitical and 40% of other people. So that to me was very surprising. And prosecutors are not supposed to take politics into account. And I don't necessarily think that Jack Smith is doing that. But um you know, and to some extent, they're trying this not just in the courtroom, but also for the history books. And they're going to have to, you know, that that's why we see him writing these sort of speaking indictments that are very clear and plain spoken. And it's easy to understand and digest whether that passes courtroom muster is one thing, but he wants the public to be able to have a lasting you know, record of the events and how he views them. But it's kind of a one-sided fight, right? Because in other words, Trump can get up at a rally and say that you're deranged and your wife is terrible and imply that you've changed your name and therefore must be some sort of a foreign agent. And Jack Smith can't do anything. I mean, like, and if you're going to follow, if you're going to try to be, follow the professional rules and not give in to the idea that we're something other than what we're supposed to be, then he has to sit there and be quiet about it, except as Sadie says, through these speaking indictments, which talks about Trump's behavior, but it's not like, you know, you're not getting into the name calling contest in any kind of an equal way. Now, you know, we, I don't think traditionally we want our prosecutors to do that, but they're left kind of to be punching bags for a defendant who's not an ordinary defendant. And they know it, you know, it's way down on the list of damaged institutions, but I can tell you people at DOJ, it's 
so demoralizing. There's not a shred of truth to this and this sort of swelling and pride of, you know, Jason Kander for the United States, which was part of the mission, has been really devalued harshly and kind of out of nowhere. And of course, it's everything you say that this the, uh, is on the line. And then more when you think about it. It's, I mean, it's really as if they're in neighboring arenas and the political Smith has to be quiet. It's one of the reasons why it's unfair and potentially dangerous to have Trump selectively talking about discovery. Then, of course, next door is the arena where he is pretty much in charge, that is in court, where Trump has very little to go by. And really, we're all watching which venue is going to be the more important institutional of these two. There is an argument that Republicans make, and some of them aren't making it necessarily just out of justifying Trump, which is that, you know, we look like we have a system in which the victors win and then prosecute the losers, even if that's not, you know, what's going on here. That's the impression that is left. There is also a cost to that. And that's not to say that Jack Smith shouldn't have brought the indictments. That's not to say that Donald Trump shouldn't be held accountable, but that there is a real fraught nature to this moment in which, okay, let's just say for the sake of argument, this is a justifiable prosecution. What about the next time, right? The door has now been opened. And so that you, even if you have a less meritorious case that a future president may want to take or his administration or her administration may want to take, it's a lot easier to do that because something has happened before, even again, if it was a more meritorious situation. Yeah. I mean, to Jason's point writ large, when you really push and we're in a period where everything's really pushing in a way, way more than I've ever seen the end of the day, so much rests on, and when you throw this out on that, the faith of people in institutions. And as big holes appear there, and you know, we're taking on a lot of a lot of water. And just one more point about DOJ, it's not all just the consequences of responding. Trump has basically promised if he wins, they're all gonna be his little vassals. It's stunning, but he's come out of the box saying that basically he will raise the DOJ as we know it. Here's why I feel like there are almost no Republicans really making that argument in good faith. I'm sure there are some, but the reason I think there are almost none is because most of these folks, they don't want Trump around anymore anyway. And they know Trump is an enormous exception to all of this. And so when when they say what sets a precedent, I feel like what a lot of them mean is, well, if Trump gets into office, now he's going to do it. The problem with that is Trump doesn't need a precedent to do that. Trump was trying to do that last time and he couldn't. And he's going to try again. When I think about the rest of these folks, do I think that, you know, a Ron DeSantis has the inclination to abuse power in some ways? Yes, we've seen him do it. But do I think that he will go so far as to target his political enemies with prosecutions in an overt way? No, not because I think Ron DeSantis is a particularly better person, but because I think Ron DeSantis will understand that he won't be able to get away with it and will worry about what would happen to him. It's that mutually assured destruction. So that's why, like, to me, whenever I hear them talking about precedent and Trump, I'm like, "Mm, that doesn't ring true because precedent is not what gives him the license to do things. And they want to get rid of him anyway. They're all hoping that this works out and they can blame the Democrats for some supposedly politically motivated prosecution. And then they can have a a much more normal human. Well, they're probably going to be a normal human, a much more traditional human lead their party. Right. They want him to go, but they still want to pick up his playbook, which page one is lie about anything. And they're still scared of him.
It's time now for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's sidebar is all about search warrants, like the one that was executed at Mar-a-Lago. What are they? What are their components? How do you get them? And the like. To explain this topic, we welcome Janine Turner. Janine Turner is an Emmy and three-time Golden Globe-nominated actress, award-winning producer and director, podcaster, and four-time published author. You may know her as Maggie O'Connell in the CBS hit and Emmy award-winning show Northern Exposure or from her starring roles in NBC's Friday Night Lights, Steel Magnolias, and Cliffhanger with Sylvester Stallone, among many others. So I give you Janine Turner on search warrants. How do you get a search warrant and search warrant components? The Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution protects people from unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. The amendment has two separate clauses, a warrants clause specifying that search warrants require a showing of probable cause in front of a neutral decision maker describing the place to be searched and the evidence to be seized. The amendment also contains a reasonableness clause permitting searches to go forward even without a warrant if they qualify under certain specific exceptions and are overall reasonable. These include exigent circumstances where obtaining a warrant may be dangerous or impractical, such as when the threat of a destruction of evidence is probable, or when an individual consents to be searched, or when contraband is seen by an officer in plain view. To obtain a search warrant under the Warrants Clause, A law enforcement officer, often with the help of a prosecuting attorney, prepares an affidavit or sworn statement describing the basis for the legal right to search. The affidavit states and describes the precise place to be searched. If it misstates that address, the warrant is not valid. The affidavit also has to provide probable cause to believe that evidence of a crime will be found at the place to be searched. Probable cause is a fairly low standard, well less, for example, than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The core of the affidavit will be a detailed, often long description of why the officer believes that the evidence will be found at the identified place and currently, as well as state specifically what object they are seeking. After preparing the affidavit, the officer takes it, along with a cover sheet that will be the warrant itself if approved, to a neutral and detached judicial officer in the federal system, typically a magistrate judge. The cover sheet that, among other things, states the location to be searched and the basis for the search. The judge reviews the cover sheet and affidavit and may ask questions of the officer to satisfy the judge that probable cause exists. If the judge is satisfied, they sign the cover sheet at the bottom. At that point, and assuming no legal infirmities that later come to light, the officer is legally authorized to search the identified premises. For Talking Feds, I'm Janine Turner. Thank you so much, Janine Turner. Currently, Janine serves as co-chair at the Constituting America Foundation, a foundation she founded in 2010. Its mission is to teach students and adults across America about the nonpartisan relevancy of the U.S. Constitution 
and the principles of self-governance inherent in our founding documents. You can learn more at constitutingamerica.org. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Sandra Park, a senior attorney with the ACLU Women's Rights Project. At the ACLU, we believe everyone deserves equal access to safe and stable housing. Fair housing is a civil rights issue because it's fundamental to creating a more just society. Where we live is not just an address. It's central to all of life's opportunities, what services, healthcare, jobs, schools, and transportation we can access, and where we can build community with our families. The ACLU is working to reduce mass evictions and barriers to housing opportunities that disproportionately impact Black women renters and their families and restore important housing protections to expand equal access to housing opportunities for everyone. To learn more about our efforts to ensure everyone has equal access to safe and stable housing, visit aclu.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, the question bubbles up around the difference between champagne and sparkling wine, and we're more than happy to explain. First things first. Champagne is a type of sparkling wine, but not all sparkling wine is champagne. We could leave it at that, but that's not our style. So here we go. A sparkling wine can only be called champagne if it comes from the region of Champagne in France. Any other bubbly produced outside of Champagne is called sparkling wine. In this exclusive region of northern France, three types of grapes, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier, come together to produce what will become the champagne you know and love. Champagne production is controlled by strict laws, so all of those grapes we just mentioned must be hand-picked. It's a labor of love, right? The other difference comes from the fermentation process, specifically the second fermentation process that produces champagne's signature bubbles. This time-consuming fermentation takes place in the bottle and is known as the traditional method, whereas some sparkling wines are fermented in a tank. Now take a wine like Cava, which is made in the champagne method, but because it's produced outside the region of Champagne, it's classified as, yep, you guessed it, sparkling wine. So if it's sparkling wine you want, Total Wine & More has a huge selection, including Prosecco, which comes from the Veneto region of Italy, Sec, from Austria and Germany, and Cremant, which comes from France, just outside of the Champagne region. But all these sparkling wines have something in common. They're amazing bottles that are available at Total Wine & More for you to take home Pop open and compare, not only to each other, but to champagne as well. Happy shopping and happy popping. Cheers. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, well, let's go to the supposed counterpoint then and the other big story of the week where the DOJ is certainly showing Merrick Garland bona fides of going after one's own, and that is the kind of surprise 
special counsel appointment of David Weiss, the guy has been doing it for five years anyway in the Hunter Biden case. So it really looked like the case was about at an end. It, they had a hiccup in the plea agreement colloquy, and the judge made them kind of go back and talk it through. And obviously, things have broken down seriously, and Hunter Biden's looking at real charges, I think, in New York or L.A., and Weiss in Delaware couldn't venue those without the, the power to do in another office. What do you think triggered this special counsel appointment in a case that, yes, they had said the investigation is continuing, but it's kind of a bromide. It really did seem to have been wrapped up, and now it is anything but. Well, it is that is an open question. I mean, around the like simultaneously with the announcement yesterday, we saw prosecutors filing in court to move the case out of Delaware to California or somewhere else. Giving him that status makes that easier and certainly codifies his ability to bring charges in a different jurisdiction other than Delaware. But the interesting thing and the curious sort of head scratching thing for me is that Weiss and Garland both had both told lawmakers and said publicly that he always had the ability as a special attorney, which is a similar designation, to bring charges in any venue that he wanted. So there has to be something that changed behind the scenes. We do know that prosecutors and defense attorneys had spent the three weeks or so after this explosive court hearing in Delaware trying to uh, shore up a deal and come to some type of an agreement, but that obviously blew up. Um, so something happened. We also know that there's been a lot of criticism, including from some IRS agents, about the Justice Department's handling of this investigation. Garland and Weiss have both said that he had the autonomy to do what he wanted and to take any sort of investigative steps, and Garland promised that he wouldn't interfere at all. So it is just kind of still, I think, an open question. I mean, one more thing happened, right, Sadie? There was a political kind of hot spot in where this weird special counsel, special attorney designation seems to have confused the IRS agent who's most complaining into thinking that Weiss was saying, I don't have such authority and Garland's in charge. And he was just confused about it. But it did get Jordan up on his high horse and, and a lot of Republicans crying for blood over supposedly too soft a deal. I mean, Weiss is the one who levels the request. And to my mind, it's hard to separate those two events. I can see how Garland was kind of stuck once Weiss says that. But Weiss's turn, is it, do we know anything about it? And how serious does it look for Hunter Biden now, the, the actual human being in this political drama? The other thing, you know, speaking of, you know, wanting something for the history books, what what the special counsel designation gives Let's Weiss do is write a very detailed report of every investigative step that they took and that submit that to the attorney general and that ultimately will very likely become public. And so Congress and the people, you know, American public will have a pretty detailed recording, not just of Hunter Biden's conduct, but also how the Justice Department responded and I think to some extent, maybe Weiss wanted to just be sure that he was heard and to tell his story. It will be months or maybe longer before we hear that now. But I think that was maybe part of it. And, you know, Garland had promised him autonomy. And so when he came forward with this request, Garland's hands were pretty tied in terms of what he could do. If this is just a matter of empowering him to take 
the existing tax and gun charges to trial. That's bad enough, by the way, for the Bidens. Nobody wants a trial if you're a Biden and going into this uh, election season. That's bad enough. The question is whether or not there's something more there. And we don't really know the answer to that. The breakdown in the plea agreement seems to be based on this idea of whether it's the end or not. Right. And that 100 people said this is the end of the investigation. We've made our deal. That's the end. And David Weiss is not willing to say that. He's not willing to give him immunity basically going forward. And you can understand why the 100 people want to say this is over. They would like to put this in the rearview mirror. They're also worried about Trump winning. And Trump has been out there very openly saying he's going to like prosecute the heck out of uh, Hunter Biden if he gets into office. So if you're Hunter Biden, you want every assurance that that's not going to happen if you are uh, pleading to these charges. But the question is okay, is in fact, something else still out there. All these business dealings, you know, after five years of looking at it, does David Weiss still think there's any kind of a case there on, you know, a Foreign Agent Registration Act kind of violation or something else? We don't know the answer to that question. Why become a special counsel if you think the case is wrapping up? And this whole thing has been a disaster, I think, for the Biden folks to have completely collapsed from just seven weeks ago when they thought they had this in the rearview mirror. Also, just from Joe Biden's point of view, the whataboutism that it guarantees for the whole uh, campaign. It's already the talking point for all of Trump stuff that it's all from Biden. Now you'll have argument over argument, you know, Thanksgiving dinner table. Oh yeah, but what about Hunter and all the Bidens? I, I think I have some insight just from the public reporting, Peter, into what might be happening. And it is in fact possible failure to register and other things involving business activities in China in uh, 2014 and 15, but they did. It seemed pretty clear to me that that had come off the table and that this was a full resolution. And when you just looked at the universe of charges they had, it seemed sensible enough to me. It's a losable trial, one for sure you don't want to go through. It means that something changed and it doesn't seem only based on facts and law, Just or, or that's the concern. Because the guy's been looking at it for five years plus, right? There, I don't think any any big evidentiary bombshell dropped. You talk about the report. I'm personally, as a DOJ guy, against these reports because you can load them up with all kinds of stuff. I, you know, I think back to Comey and the 2016 election. If prosecutors don't bring charges, they should shut up, not say the you know all the reasons somebody was 80 percent chargeable. But he also, I think, is going to have carte blanche to write whatever he wants and. That'll be more fodder, I think, for the Republicans, depending on when it comes out. What do you make about the reaction from Republicans to the deal? Is it like there's no way they can they can take a win? You know, there was all these charges that somehow this very move was more evidence that something's rotten at DOJ. It's almost hard to like parse that. But did that surprise you? And what underlies it? I just think that the Republicans are driving cross country in a car that is fueled by anger. And and if they're not mad about something, then no they don't. There's no other gas. <laughs> yeah, they don't really. And they, politically, they don't know how to operate. They can't get back on the road. And so it's like you can give them what they want. But even when in the majority, they exist in a minority party posture. That is the entire rhetorical theme of what it is to be a Washington, at least, Republican right now. It was fascinating to watch. I mean, like they had been, uh, of course, complaining that David Weiss was blocked from doing this or that and that he wasn't a special counsel. And now he's been made a special counsel. And they say, well, wait a second, that's terrible. 
The reason is because they've decided that David Weiss, who was appointed by the Trump administration, not by the Biden administration, and kept on in an abundance of desire on the part of the new Biden administration to not look like they were trying to interfere with this case. They've now decided that David Weiss, the Trump appointee, is actually a lackey of the Biden administration because of this so-called sweetheart deal. And therefore, you know, making him a special counsel has now been interpreted in that view as part of the cover-up. I'm not sure as a cover-up, I can see why they're disappointed in Weiss because he's not being the aggressive prosecutor they want him to be. But I think it's very outcome dependent, right? If he were giving them the outcome they wanted, they would say he's being a perfectly professional and fair prosecutor. They're giving him an outcome they don't think is good enough. And so therefore they criticize. That seems it exactly. Although you would think this outcome for now is pretty darn good, especially for what it augurs. But it's both risable. And if you just go down one level below the surface, the dots don't connect, but it doesn't seem to matter. But as as a rhetorical reality, if that's an ugly uh, phrase, but if I can uh, use it, it's man, it's going to be so ugly. I think we're just hunter, 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 hunter for the whole campaign. The other thing to remember with these folks is that they don't really work as a strategic collective on behalf of the Republican Party. They work as individual agents in the search for more email addresses and a larger donor base. And who are these folks? That's a really important. The Jim Jordans of the world, the Matt Gates, whoever, you know, all the people who are popping off and upset about special counsel this or, or whether Weiss is or it's just a special attorney. They're not really upset about any of those things. They exist in a role now where their job is to constantly look for the next marketing strategy to continue to advance their brand, either within their district or larger within their state, or in some cases nationally. And that's what this is, is that, you know, they could have announced David Weiss's favorite color and Jim Jordan's people can craft a fundraising email out of it. And, and that's what this is. I would add, though, I, that the Republicans, of course, are obviously acting out of partisan interests, as, as partisans are wont to do. That doesn't mean that there isn't some legitimate issue there with what Hunter did. And, and the two things can be the same, you know, can be true at the same time, right? And I think that it, it gets lost in the whataboutism. Anything that Hunter Biden did, of course, doesn't come close to what former President Trump has been charged with, right? The, take the worst possible damning version of, of whatever it is that Hunter may have done. It's not the same thing as trying to overturn an election. But- Having said that, Hunter Biden has been shown by testimony and stories to have tried to profit off of his name. That's certainly the impression he has given. You know, that's a, a Washington perennial that people have long, re, you know, recoiled at, and that's worth scrutinizing when you have, a, a, you know, a sitting president of the United States, uh, his son out there uh, collecting money from foreign entities. Of course, President Trump was still in business while he was president. And Jared Kushner then got $2 billion from the Saudis the second he left office, and, and he did actually set... Saudi policy. So there's a lot of whataboutism here, and none of which should mean that there isn't something serious to look at it, Hunter, but it should be what the facts are, not what unconfirmed rumors and, and allegations that are thrown out pretty casually without any evidence. I'll tell you what I think Mayor Garland believes in his heart. He agree, I think everything you say, but the thing that really chafes him, he certainly believes that the department is 100% capable of vigorously investigating and prosecuting a relative of the president. And so in some ways, it's a kind of acknowledgement to a point of view that not only does he disagree with, but kind of cuts against his grain. But there you have it. I was just going to add that probably the reason Merrick Garland feels that way is because the Hunter Biden case is, unlike the Trump case, a pretty straightforward prosecution. It's not like there's questions about, is this really illegal if he really did this thing? Right. I mean, it's a gun and taxes case. They've done them before. That's true. But more than that, he thinks even if it were hard, 
the guy who sits down the AUSA and opens the file, it just doesn't register, nor does it in the supervisory structure. That's either a fact or it isn't. I've been there. I think it's a fact. Does it all get filtered through, oh, he's Hunter Biden and the president, or, or do they look at it straight on? They look at it straight on, but it doesn't, see, it doesn't matter in 2023 is my sense. All right, let's just take a couple minutes on the big news to come, as this hasn't been a breathless enough week. So Fulton County prosecution charges are anticipated as soon as this week. Of course, they've been imminent for a time. I just want to ask your thoughts about it. We've got three indictments already against the former president, but this one is going to be as many as 18 defendants we're hearing, maybe RICO, fraught with all kinds of legal issues. Do you see this as really kind of adding, how much of an added oomph to the whole problem and the whole general national debate of do we want Trump or not? Does this portend or is it just very much at the margins? I think it's very significant because we know that this prosecutor has vast experience with RICO cases and has skillfully charged those type of cases in the past. And so she has the ability to bring an array of charges that the federal government doesn't really have. And she can look at figures who, you know, more closely than the Justice Department has been able to with the limited federal statutes at its disposal. So I do think that it's a different case and that it adds to the peril that the former president and people in his orbit are facing. And she has the ability to go after some of those false electors themselves, which we didn't see um, Jack Smith do. We know that there are six unindicted co-conspirators in Smith's case, but maybe she charges some of them. She's kept it kind of close to the vest in terms of who exactly she wants. I mean, definitely it's a legitimate case and will have consequences. Part of the problem, of course, is that she's an elected Democrat, right? I mean, even more than the Justice Department, she is overtly of the other political party. And that's always going to be there for fodder for Trump and his people to dismiss. But where the other thing, in addition to what was Sadie is saying that makes her case different, is that if Trump were elected again, he might be able to unravel a federal prosecution and even even pardon himself. We could debate that or not. There's nothing he can do about a state prosecution. And she is a state prosecutor. He will therefore go in if he were to be convicted before going in as the president again with a state conviction he can't get rid of. And I don't know what happens at that point, but it's a, it's a whole different ballgame. I'll put my nerdy cork hat on and say, here's what I think happens, which is I think the Supreme Court steps in and says, while he's president, he can't be president from a Georgia jail. We're going to hold it in abeyance. So I, you're right. It doesn't have the power that a pardon does. But, you know, four years and then appeals resume. It does augur a big timeline. If they do that, what about the co-conspirators? Can those cases move forward? Definitely. You know, I think it was a very ingenious strategy to indict only Trump. But they, those co-conspirators, the indictment doesn't even refer to them as unindicted co-conspirators. You know, their day, I think, is really coming. You wrote, say, I wanted to get into it, but we won't have time, about Mark Meadows' Man of Mystery. And we know there's some really important evidence. It's a fact. It's out there that he didn't put in the indictment. And that means... When you come to trial, and he, they said yesterday that they'd interviewed thousands of people, right? He's sitting on a mountain of evidence, and we're basically, Trump's going to find out about it today. He's going to get all the witness stuff, et cetera. We might not find about, out about it 
cartel trial, or if one of these guys breaks and becomes a cooperator. But the, the shape of this case, and specifically the Chesbros, Eastman's, Giuliani's of the world is going to, and, and the big mysterious question is Mark Meadows cooperating, you know, is known right now to the players and we'll know it soon enough. Darn, 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 we are out of time on a blockbuster news week. I guess what could I expect? We have one minute left for our final feature of Talking Five. And the question this week is, so this week, Ohio voters rejected an amendment that would have made it easier to amend the Constitution that got national coverage. Does that result have significance outside of Ohio? What is, in five words or fewer, your takeaway from that vote? I'll go. Abortion rights are popular. (laughs) I guess I would say referendums clear but not necessarily elections. <laughs> okay, so you guys, if you'll get together, you, you can have one of my, you can have one of my words. I, I stole one of your words. <laughs> yeah, Sadie, I read the our story and the headline on it was five words, thankfully, and I thought it was a perfect summation of what happened: a Republican warning on abortion. There you go, and a dirty <laughs> secret for non-reporters: the titles you don't get to choose, and often they don't dovetail necessarily with the story and produce some chagrin. And it's a straightforward, I've got the same thing in five different words. Dobbs remains a big issue. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Sadie, Jason, and Peter. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, Please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and quite a lot of bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Harvard economist David Deming about a recent study he co-authored titled Diversifying Society's Leaders, The Determinants and Consequences of Admission to Highly Selective Colleges. Talking Feds is a completely independent production. So if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to TalkingFeds.com contact. Whether they're for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez. Associate producer, Catherine Devine. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Zeke Reed is our research producer. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers and production assistants by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.